Amen. Well, that was a delight. Thank you, Mom and Dad, for doing the readings for us tonight. They, they really did not want any time on stage, but I persuaded them. It was my turn to tell them that they would not get good gifts for Christmas. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a lot of good that would have done. Um, I, when I was in college, I was a theological historical studies major, and most people looked at me the way that you're looking at me now. What did he say, huh? And uh, so whenever I was on an airplane, I tried to avoid two things. One, disclosing that I went to a Christian university. I just didn't want to ruin the conversation that early on. You know, I wanted to at least get past the, you know, I didn't want my, anyway. So I tried to avoid that, but if we couldn't get past that, the next question was, well, what are you studying there? And I tried to avoid that question, but oftentimes it was unsuccessful. And as soon as I said, oh, I'm a theology major, I'm studying theology, they would begin studying the emergency exit card and found that more fascinating than me. You know, they wanted to all say, oh, they were busy. You know, they opened their book. Or that was the moment that the headphones went in or whatever. The conversation was sort of over at that point. And I think, you know, to be fair, a lot of us have this impression about theology. We think theology is uh, a scary word. It's a, it's a word that is associated with arguments and fights and debates. And so for half of you, you love that. You think, oh, yeah, I love debates. And for the other half of you, you're like, can we please just get along? Can we love one another? You know? And so the word theology itself, depending on, on where you, you, you end up on that scale, the word theology itself conjures up a whole set of images either happy ones or unhappy ones, unpleasant ones, because of our association with that word. We think that this is, theology is the stuff of people in ivory towers somewhere or long, you know, a long time ago with big books that are, that when you open them, dust goes flying everywhere and guys with, you know, thick horn-rimmed glasses or whatever. We, that's, we, we think theology is for them, but me, I live in the real world where the real life is happening. I don't need to know theology. Well, I have news for you tonight that you have a theology. Every one of you has a theology. The question is whether it's a good theology or a bad one. Every one of us has a view of God, has a view about who he is and what he's like and what he's done for us and what that means. We all have formed some level of an opinion or a view of that. We have a theology. Is it a good one? Well, that's the question. And so tonight we're beginning a two-week mini-series about Christ and about who Jesus is. The, 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 the theological designation for that is Christology. Well, you say, okay, I got it, something-ology and Christ. Okay, I get it, you know, Christology. And again, that seems like, okay, isn't this just academic? Isn't this the stuff that you learn so you can pass a test or go through catechism if that's your background or whatever it is? But why do we need to talk about it here in church? Couldn't we just talk about the six steps to enjoy Christmas or something, you know? Three tips for a better turkey or, you know, like why, why could we talk about something practical? Christology is probably the most important thing we could ever talk about as Christians. The thing about Christianity, and maybe this reveals what we think, what we believe about Christianity, but Christianity is not about a, a, a code of conduct. It's not about a set of rules. It's not about a certain behavior we're trying to conform to. Christianity is not about a certain cause or a way of living. It's not, first of all, about any of those things. Christianity is, at its core, about Christ. It's about a person. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. If we are wrong in our thinking about Christ, we're wrong about a lot of other things. 
Martin Luther said the Bible is, the stuff that we find in the scriptures are not primarily there to help us become better business people or better butlers or better whatever. They're there to help us know God and become his people. And that does translate into being a better business person and being a better, that does lead into that. But if we get the question of who God is wrong, then it doesn't matter the, the other subsidiary questions we try to answer about how we're supposed to live. Does that make sense? The question of who is more important than the questions of how. We give a lot of time in church to the questions of how. How do we do this? How do we do How do we do That we assume that we're all on the same page as to the question of who. Who is this Jesus? What does the incarnation mean? So tonight and next week, we're going to be talking about what it means, what the humanity and the divinity of Christ, what that means, why it's so important that we believe that, and what its impact is for all of us as believers. There are a couple of historic heresies regarding the humanity of Christ. I'll get to the point where we say kind of the orthodox wording of what we believe about Jesus, but there are a couple of historic heresies that happened fairly early on. During the time of the New Testament writers were pastoring their churches and leading their congregations, there was a philosophy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism had to do with this idea that that everything about the key to life, the secret to life, was all about some hidden, mysterious knowledge. That was what their their way of thinking. And sort of a, a, a subset of that view is this little word called docetism. Docetism is this view, and by the way, tonight, you're going to want to take down lots of notes, going to be lots of terms, lots of scripture verses, lots of references, so that you can have this and maybe reflect on it and think about it, talk about it later. But docetism was what was the view of Christ that the Gnostics held. Now, the Gnostics, because they believed that it was all about some special secret knowledge, they thought everything spiritual is good and everything material is bad. Do you know anybody like that? That everything that has to do with this world is evil and wrong. But only the things that are spiritual are good. So the more prayer meetings we can go to, okay, you see where this is going. But so their view of Christ was a high view of, yeah, he's God. Of course he's God. But his humanity, no, the docetism view would say he only appeared to be human. It was an illusion. It was an elaborate magic trick that God could somehow make himself appear human. Very early on, that was condemned, rejected as a heresy. In fact, by 150 AD, there was this, uh, there was this uh, form of questions that were developed by the apostles. We'll get to it in a moment, and I'll, and I'll show you why the things that they said there were very important. But a, a couple centuries later, a couple hundred years later, that, there was another view set forth by a guy named Apollinaris, and it's called Apollinarianism, named after him. And uh, what he said was this, is okay, fine, Jesus is human, and he's God, he's fully human, fully God, but how exactly does that work? He rejected the idea that it meant a human soul and a divine soul and, and, and a human body. He said, well, that's one, two, three things that can't be, one plus one plus one, we can't be all one person. So he says, it must have just been a human physical body, but not a human mind, not human emotions, not a human soul. It must have been a divine soul, but just maybe an elaborate Halloween costume of human skin that God sort of put on. The church also rejected that view in the, uh, in the uh, excuse me, 
The Council of Constantinople at 381 AD, which all that council did was reaffirm the Council of Nicaea in 325, from which we get the Nicene Creed. But all of those guys, all they were doing was affirming something that came, that surfaced around church history right around 150 AD. That's what we've, we call today the Apostles' Creed. Now, it began like this when people were about to get baptized, and we're going to do this tonight with our 13, 14, 15 people that are going to get baptized in this horse trough over here in about 15 minutes. But what they would do is the baptism candidates would come up and they would ask them these three questions. They would say, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? They'd say, yes, check. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and rose again at the third day, living from among the dead and ascended unto heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the quick and the dead? They would say, yes. And they would say, do you believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? And they would say, yes. Why do you think so early in church history they began to ask these questions before they would baptize somebody? Because they wanted to know, are you thinking correctly about God, first of all? That he is mysteriously a triune, three-in-one God, Father, Son. And all. Are you thinking correctly about him? Specifically, the longest paragraph is the one about Jesus. Are you thinking correctly about Jesus, that his birth was an actual ver- birth? The reason they mentioned Pontius Pilate, why? So we can all have a bad guy to blame? No, it's to date the story. To say Jesus, his death was a, is an actual historical event. There's, there's this movement among some people that says, you know what, whether or not you actually believe in a historical Jesus or a mythological Jesus, it doesn't really matter as long as that feelings of belief in that Jesus, whoever he is, makes you a better person than hooray for you. No. Right away in the second century, they were rejecting that. They were saying, look, we believe in an actual historical Jesus who did this, who was both fully God and fully man. Tertullian used this phrase, one person, two natures. Tertullian was, a bit, was the bishop of Carthage around the late second century, and he was the first, just for, for your little tidbit of church history, something, something to use at your Christmas parties coming up. He was the first church father to write in Latin as opposed to Greek, and so he became, he's considered the father of Western theology because of that. But he coined that phrase, one person, two natures. How? I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a miracle. But we believe it. What we want to talk about tonight is really two sets of thoughts. One is, why is it that we, what do do we believe about the humanity of Christ? And then secondly, what, what does that mean for us as believers, what are the implications? So I want to take you through a number of scripture verses to talk about, to, to say what we believe about the humanity of Christ. What are we saying? First of all, we're saying that he had a physical body along with physical human needs. He was born of a virgin. You see that in Luke 2, 5 through 7. We, we read that. Uh, Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. This is an actual birth. He was actually in the womb of Mary. He comes out a physical birth. Secondly, he was tired. Or secondly, under this physical body, physical needs thing. He was tired. John 4, verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Interesting that John just includes this stuff. He was tired. 
He was hungry and thirsty. Matthew 4, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You think? I mean, really? Yeah, I mean, just, to, just so you know, <laughs> he was hungry. John 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. He died. His death was an actual physical death where his body failed. It says this in Luke 23, verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. He had a physical body and physical needs, a body that got tired, a body that that got weak, a body that got hungry and thirsty, a body that finally gave in to the extreme torment and punishment of the cross. Secondly, he experienced human emotions, including the stresses and strains, and he had a human mind. This would be what uh, Apollinaris was denying when he said he didn't have a human soul, he didn't really have human emotions. Well, what do you do then with John 11.35 where it says Jesus wept when his good friend Lazarus was reported dead? Matthew 14.33 tells us that he was distressed He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Deeply distressed and troubled. You're like, yep, that's about how I feel right now. He was angry. Mark 3, verse 5, he looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, distressed again, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. By the way, I think, could there be any more contrast between what our anger leads us to do and what Jesus' anger led him to do? Our anger leads us to hurt people. His anger leads him to heal somebody. Wow. But he felt it. He had to learn. He had this human mind that needed to, to, to grow and develop and learn. Luke two fifty two. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. It was a process. He didn't, he didn't come out of the womb talking. He didn't come out explaining Isaiah at three. That came about 12, maybe. But he had to grow and develop and learn it. Which, you know that song we sing around Christmas time, you know, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I'm not sure. I mean, if he was hungry and thirsty, I'm pretty sure he would have cried in in a completely selfless way, of course. (laughs) Which leads us to number three, he was tempted in every way. This you see in Hebrews 4.15, we're going to come back to that text, but it tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. So wait a second, what do you mean? How, how, How could that be? I think when we think about temptation, you have to remember that we're always thinking about temptation through the lens of our sin nature. That there's something inside of us that resonates with temptation and says, Yes, I want that. Yes, I'm going to do that. But do you know not every human had a sin nature? Adam and Eve did not have a sin nature. When they chose to disobey and sin, thanks a lot, guys, it passed on to us this sinful bent towards temptation. Jesus shows up, and this is why I think it's remarkable. We'll come back to this text later on, but it's remarkable why Paul compares Jesus to Adam and calls him the second Adam. It's a way of saying, look, he was tempted in every way, but he didn't have this sinful nature in him that made him say yes. And he didn't say yes. 
Hebrews 4.15, tempted in every way, yet without sin. He was without sin is our fourth point. He was without sin. And here's an interesting list of characters who affirm Jesus' sinlessness, if you will. It's not exactly a word. Peter affirms it. John 6, 68 through 69, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. John affirms it in 1 John 3, verse 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Peter affirms it. John affirms it. Even Pilate's wife affirms it. Matthew 27, 19, but you know that he, uh, excuse me, uh, yep. I copied the wrong verse. You got it on there? Yeah, great. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sends him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Peter, John, Pilate's wife. The thief on the cross affirms it. He says in Luke 23, 41, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Somehow even the thief on the cross can sense this guy is not like us. Remarkably, even Judas affirms it. Matthew 27, verse 4, Judas talking, he says, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. It's one thing to hear it from the lips of Peter and John, but how about Pilate's wife, Judas, the thief on the cross, Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then, of course, Jesus himself affirms it. John 8.29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Jesus isn't bragging. He's just kind of saying it like it is. John 8, 46, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Nobody could prove him guilty of sin. So, okay, okay, great. So, so we see his humanity, physical body, physical needs. We, we, we see that, okay, you know, great, actual death, tempted in every way. But, but great, cool. I mean, what, what do I do? File this away somewhere? You know, pull this out for a bit of... Bible trivia or something? Why does this matter so much? I think maybe the most important reason it matters for us is because in order for Jesus to mediate, to stand between, to stand on behalf of all humanity, he needed to come as a human. He had to. Jesus mediated for us before the Father. Romans 5, verse 18 through 19 Paul talking, consequently, just as the result of one trespass, talking about Adam, was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. How remarkable is that? That they're in order to say, God, the Father, look at humanity as clean, as righteous. It had to be through one man because it was one man that got us started down the, down the road of trouble. It got us started down this path of disobedience and sin and gave us this bent towards sin. And Jesus says, okay, it's going to take a man to come and reverse it. 
So he embraces full humanity. 1 Timothy, Paul writing again, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. I love this way, the way he says it, the man Christ Jesus. Yes, he's fully God. We'll talk about it next week and why that matters. But the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for men. The man who gave himself as a ransom for men and women. The testimony given in its proper time. But you know, there's some other reasons why the humanity of Christ is important. There is this idea that Jesus showed us what it means to truly be human. You know, when you hear stories like we've, you've all been bombarded with, you can't help it, in the grocery store or ESPN, CNN, whatever news channel you hear about the stories of Tiger Woods, and it, you've probably heard phrases from people or commentators that say, oh, well, he's only human. And we're used to saying that phrase, only human. C.S. Lewis suggests that none of us are only human. We're all subhuman. We're less than human. Inhuman, inhumane in the way that we treat others. Because the only one who was truly, fully human, human in the sense that God intended when he created Adam and Eve, was Jesus. Jesus shows shows us what it's like to be truly human. I I recommend that we not use that phrase, oh, you've got to forgive me, man, I'm only human. I recommend we scrub that from our vocabulary. And we say, forgive me, I'm functioning less than human. I'm functioning. People kind of look at you like, excuse me? You think you're an alien? Maybe not. I don't know. We'll figure out some way to say it. What we're trying to say is, look, human, the way God designed it, is not the way we're living. Not this way of insecure, fearful, selfish, manipulative. That's far less than human. Human is what Jesus showed us. That's why one of the New Testament apostles writes and says, if you, want, if you are in Christ, you need, to, you need to walk as Jesus walked. You want to be fully human. You want to be fully yourself, functioning with wholeness in your relationships, wholeness in your heart. You need to live the way Jesus lived. He showed us what it was like. But you know, more than that, Jesus demonstrated that our human earthly life is good. A remarkable thing about Christianity and Judaism, the Father, the creator of the universe, creates the world and calls it good. Jesus comes with skin on, comes taking on humanity to show us that there's nothing evil about matter or material things. There's, there, there is no way a Muslim could accept this idea that God became, because that, the, the, the premise of Islam is based on this idea of God being so far above and us being so far below that we've got to submit Islam, submit. He's so great, the Allah Akbar, the great God, the rest of us are just puny below. It's Christianity that says that great God put on, took on humanity. Because humanity is not evil. I've got news for you. Because of the incarnation, we can experience God just as much at a baby shower as you can at a prayer meeting. That you can know God just as much by doing the dishes for your spouse as you can by spending three hours alone. 
Martin Luther, when he was writing about this, he was talking about the desert monks who, who fled society and decided to go hide out in the desert and claim to have visions of angels. And maybe they did, very possibly they did. But Luther, being feisty, didn't quite like that. And he says, trouble not the angels of heaven, but rather look for them among your father and mother and brother and sister and your neighbor and your friend. In other words, we're not trying to, as Christians, we're not trying to escape earth and, oh, if I could just go, I'll fly away. And just this escapist mentality, that's not what we're about. The message of the incarnation is not that we should all one day hope to leave this evil world. No. The message of the incarnation is that God has broken in. He's broken into your life. He's broken into your mess. He's broken into my mess. He's broken into my failure. He's broken into yours. I think one of the great damages of this tradition of, of, of charismatic sort of stuff that we're maybe kind of sort of part of is this idea, again, it's a new version of Gnosticism, that there are things that are spiritual and there are things that are earthly, carnal. When Paul writes about the flesh and says, have nothing to do with the works of the flesh, He's not talking about our mortality or our physicality. He's talking about our carnality. He's talking about our desire to live apart from God. Flesh in the sense of our carnal nature is bad. Flesh in the sense of our physicality, the enjoyment of a good meal with friends, a game, a competition, a sport, all of those things are redeemed, elevated because Jesus came. Don't you think there's a little bit of a wink-wink the fact that he did his first miracle at a wedding? Saying, hey, I enjoy a good laugh. I enjoy a good time. This may mess with you a little bit. I enjoy a good wine. Okay, we'll leave that. (laughs) Woo! Okay, we were doing so good. Okay. (laughs) Fourthly, Jesus entered into our suffering. So many times people who reject Christ, reject God, reject faith say, well, how could a good God allow suffering? And we always try as Christians to come up with intellectual responses to that. Well, you see, it's free will and God gave us free will and free will is important. And I'm I'm thankful for all those arguments. But do you know what God's response to the suffering of humanity that we brought upon ourselves because of our sin? Do you know how God responded to it? By saying, I will enter it. I'll come and I'll suffer with you. And more than that, I will rise again so that you can know that suffering is not the end. Have you ever had a friend or a loved one pass away? Jesus has. If you're sad tonight or burdened because you know somebody who's fighting for their lives on their deathbed, Jesus has been there. If you're watching, thinking of a son or a daughter or a family member that's self-destructing because of their decisions and choosing a path that they shouldn't be on and you're watching them implode and you're aching for them, Jesus has been there. He saw one of his 12 self-destruct to the point of hanging himself. When you're the victim of hurt or pain or abuse, Scorn, contempt. Jesus has been there. 
Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our, with our weakness. Wow. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. People, if we understood this, in the moment when you are weakest, you would never think about running away from God. If we really understood this, in the moment when you're weakest, you would never think, I can't come to God. If you really understood this, in the moment that you're your weakest, you'd say, Jesus, I'm running to you because you have been there. Do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weakness. Wow. Thank God for Jesus. It's overwhelming to realize that. That there's nothing you could experience in this life no pain, no rejection, no hurt, no wound, no question. Feel like God's abandoned you? Jesus has been there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's nothing that you experience that we can say, God, you don't understand. He says, oh, yes, I do. I came. I did it. I know. I know. I know. I'm praying with you. I'm praying for you. I was there. Let's pray. Tonight, many of you are probably in a place of where you could relate to questions, pain, ache, hurt, all of that. Would you take a moment to know that Jesus has been there? To hear him say that because of the humanity of Christ, we believe he's been there. See, this is why docetism and all those other stuff, why that's so damaging, because what it says is Jesus didn't really know. He was faking it. But if you believe that, then you'll think that to, to, to be a Christian, you've got to be good at faking it too. So when someone say, sees you and says, how are you doing? You think that to be a good Christian, you've got to say, oh, I'm great. I'm blessed. I'm strong. I'm an overcomer. But Jesus showed us you can... Say that you're weak because there's a high priest who sympathizes with your weakness. He has been there. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus, we want to always run to you in the midst of our situations of life. Run to you, our great high priest. Not a a God that stayed far away. God who took on humanity entered into our suffering and redeemed it redeemed us so that no pain is forgotten no fear is without voice and that no loss is without the hope of life we thank you Jesus in your name Amen